Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, welcome to another episode of Timeline Tapes, the podcast made by the YouTube channel Timeline. I'm your host, Nate Fisher. Here is where we take documentaries from our YouTube channel and turn them into podcasts so you can listen on the go wherever you are. In this episode, we'll be exploring the fascinating life of the magician extraordinaire Harry Houdini with comedian and writer Alan Davies. The life behind the illusions of the world's greatest showman is an extraordinary one that goes further than the American dream. This is the story of how a former Hungarian immigrant became America's most influential entertainer. The voice of this show is Alan Davies, the stand-up comedian, writer, and panelist on the TV show QI. Throughout the episode, you'll hear him speaking to Houdini's biographer, experts at the Houdini Museum, and those who met the man himself. Houdini was one of America's first celebrities, rising from abject poverty to extreme wealth and from obscurity to international fame. He was the original adrenaline junkie drawing crowds of hundreds of thousands to watch his death-defying escapes. He could make the impossible appear possible. Harry Houdini was extraordinary, the ultimate entertainer. He perfected the art of illusion and was the master of self-promotion. I believe that he was, quite simply, the greatest showman of all time. The Chinese water torture cabinet is Houdini's most terrifying escape act. Holding his breath underwater for minute after minute, shackled upside down, suppressing fear and panic. For me, this represents everything that is fascinating about Houdini. How he pushed his body and mind to their very limits, risked his life each day to entertain, and used his vivid imagination to conjure up compelling, dangerous acts. But just what drives a man to forge a career cheating death, to stop at nothing, to become the greatest showman of all time? It all began here. America, 1900, the birth of the modern world. At its heart, New York pulsating with technology and progress. Skyscrapers soar, electricity illuminates, and the Statue of Liberty is being built. America is busy branding itself the land of opportunity. 
Millions of immigrants crossed the Atlantic from Eastern Europe to be part of this moment. Amongst them, a young boy, then called Eric Weiss. Houdini came to America from Hungary at the age of four in 1878. So picture here, she was in when he was three and a half. A tiny little lad with four brothers and a sister to compete with. For a small boy, the future was a mystery. For many of the new immigrants, the land of the free was anything but. Dreams of fame and fortune were replaced by the grim reality of starvation, disease, deprivation. And the Weiss family was no exception. Eric's father, Samuel Meyer, a failed rabbi, had not only lost his job, but was now dying of cancer. The family faced crippling poverty. And on hearing this news, the young Eric, who was fiercely devoted to his mother, set out to do everything he could to impress her, to provide for her, and to protect her. Could this be the first clue as to where Houdini got his incredible determination and drive from? From a young age, no obstacle would get in his way. In fact, it spurred him on. At eight, he left school to shine shoes and sell newspapers. At nine, he performed as a trapeze artist calling himself the Prince of the Air. And at 12, he accompanied his ailing father to find work in the center of New York, leaving his beloved mother behind. Eric and his father lived here, in Mrs. Heffler's boarding house. Probably a less than salubrious affair. 19th century America, not a great place to be poor, with cold water and disease and gangs and prostitutes on the street. The young Eric knew he had to exploit every possible opportunity he could find. Hearing of a magical place over in Brooklyn dedicated to pleasure, curiosity and fun, he knew instinctively it was for him. Coney Island had been attracting holidaymakers since the 1830s. It was a mecca for entertainment, full of weird and wonderful sideshow acts. For an ambitious boy, it was the place to watch, learn and perform. Eric was transfixed and set about learning the skills that would later become the basis for his illusions, as, at this time, Eric's repertoire was just simple card tricks and close-up magic. One of the most important skills Eric learned was how to relax the muscles in the throat, a technique that would later allow him to swallow keys to set himself free and produce 50 threaded needles from his mouth. Eric was hooked. He wanted to be a part of this world of exotic performers, but was increasingly conscious that his slim build and short stature, only five foot five, didn't really cut it. So this here is our bed of nails. So he turned his focus to the impressive strongmen, seeing how physical strength and extreme training was the key to their performance. Eric knew if he was to stand out from the crowd, he had to do the same. You want to give it a shot and lay down on a bed of nails? Want I hurt myself? You might. <laughs> you can feel it. Yeah, they're pretty pointy. Right, Get put your position. legs right there. <laughs> Trying to nail Houdini is a lot harder than I thought. 
and relax. If you're not comfortable, just adjust yourself. Hmm. Now, how's that? It's okay. Told you. Yeah. Anything can be learned. Doesn't matter what it is. You can learn how to do anything. It's a matter of controlling the mind and the body. You know, truly believing that you can do it and then controlling the body to accept whatever it is, be it a flaming torch, be it a sword, be it a spike in your face, whatever it is. And where's the nearest emergency room? Uh, Coney Island Hospital. I knew you'd About a that. mile and a half away. <laughs> <laughs> Eric took the maxim mind over matter to heart, so began a life dedicated to being in complete control running five miles a day in Central Park, training to keep his body in peak condition, never drinking or smoking. He was now ready to do anything to be the best. The young Eric studied the words of this man, the French magician Robert Houdin. This book became his Bible. But then, in the trait which he continued throughout his life, he threw away the teachings and set about superseding him. Eric was told that in French, if you had an I to your name, it means like. So at the age of 17, he became Harry Houdini. And he never looked back. He was now on his way to becoming a great showman. But there was something missing. A partner who would love him through thick and thin to help him forge his career and share his secrets. When Houdini was 21, he caught sight of Bess Raymond an 18-year-old song and dance performer. It was love at first sight. She was perfect, and her 4'11 stature made his 5'5 feel positively macho. They married three weeks later. Houdini said of his marriage to Bess, this is the one shackle I don't want to escape from. Now he had two women in his life, his mother and Bess. In a photograph of the three of them, he wrote at the top, my two sweethearts. He depended on the absolute emotional support of those closest to him. And to be a top magician, he also demanded his wife and brother fiercely protect the secrets of his act. He led them to a bridge, halted in the middle, turned to them, waited for the bells of a nearby church to chime midnight, and then, rather dramatically, had them swear an oath and said, I know you will never betray this oath. May not have been necessary, given this was his wife and his brother, and they were already on his team, but he was very serious about this. Now, he knew he could trust Bess. Their relationship could move on to a new level. So Harry and Bess became partners and were together on stage for Houdini's next great illusion, Metamorphosis. Houdini and Bess toured their act with a travelling circus, desperate to make ends meet and send money home to his mother Cecilia. It was a rough, hard life, and the kind of audiences and fame Houdini was dreaming of were nowhere in sight. Things got so tough, Houdini nearly threw in the towel. But of course for him, giving up was not an option. Instead, he knew he had to be resourceful, break away from traditional magic, transform his act into something startling and radical. In 1899, at the age of 25, 
he chanced upon it. This was about to change the history of magic forever and make him a star. Houdini ingeniously took a familiar object that his audiences associated with fear and incarceration and turned it into something extraordinary. A new act was born. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, escapology. Harry Houdini was going to show the world how he could break free from seemingly impossible shackles. I think what you have here is an extremely intelligent guy who is desperate to express himself. And um, I think his preferred means of expression would have been through words. He never had any education. He never went to school. So he's kind of tongue-tied. He can't express himself. Then he discovers breaking out of handcuffs and expressing himself in that way. Did he feel quickly that this might be the way to success for him? I think at the beginning, it was about proving that although he was poor and uneducated, he could nevertheless make it in the big world and, and, and break out of poverty and break out of all the disadvantages that he'd had. I think when he was doing his act, he was kind of magically freeing himself in a way that uh, nothing else enabled him to do. And I think there was a kind of current between him and the audience that sensed this and was extremely powerful. The challenge for Houdini now was to go from being a successful small-town entertainer to an international hit. Ahead of the game, he did what any self-respecting rock star does today, went on a world tour. America, Russia, Europe. In each city, he printed flyers, advertising himself as the handcuff king. He set up publicity stunts, demanding the local police lock him in jail. By the time he had broken free, his shows were a sellout. In 1904, 30-year-old Harry Houdini arrived in London, a city alive with vaudeville acts and music halls. But to his disappointment, they'd never heard of his handcuff escape act. And frankly, they're not that keen. Faced with a prospect of failure, something Houdini couldn't stomach, he boldly walked into Scotland Yard. There, he impressed detectives so effectively with his escapes, word got around. He now had one final test to seal his reputation. Here, at the Hippodrome in Leicester Square, he was challenged by the Daily Mirror newspaper to get out of fiendishly difficult handcuffs that had, allegedly, taken five years to make. So here we are inside London's famous Hippodrome, now a casino as you can see, but back then there were 4,000 people in here, plus 100 journalists. Houdini, with the cuffs on, disappeared behind a curtain and began to struggle. That was the show, the curtain. A band played a waltz and Houdini struggled. The crowd waited. About 25 minutes in, he said he was restricted in his movements by his coat and could he take it off? And they said no. So he got a penknife and began to cut the sleeves off his coat. And he reappeared, went back behind the curtain and commenced to struggle again. An hour went by, the crowd waited, the band played. And then after an hour and seven minutes, he emerged, cuffless. There was a standing ovation. Back then, 4,000 people on their feet. Houdini now had London in the palm of his hand. 
He was the biggest star in the country. How on earth had he achieved the impossible? That, of course, was his allure. He always maintained an air of mystery. I know he must have used picks and keys, but where did he hide them? Especially as most of the time he was semi-naked. The Houdini Museum in New York might just hold the answers. Here, fill these. So the only way to get into these is to have the key. Right? To have the key or know some of Houdini's secrets. <laughs> so could you give me a few examples of places where he could hide picks and keys and gimmicks? Sometimes in his hair, sometimes hanging on the back of his vertebrate, or his wife would give him a kiss and possibly pass the key to him that way. We also have the metal plate that Houdini would attach to his knee, so when he had a certain pair of handcuffs, when you hit the metal plate, that would be able to open up the handcuffs. Harry Houdini, in his early 30s, was the toast of Europe and America. With his newfound wealth and success, he could now buy real estate in New York and lavish gifts upon his aging mother. He even bought her a dress that he claimed had been made for Queen Victoria. But despite all this, Houdini felt far from satisfied. This is, I think, part of what drove him on. As soon as he had amazed crowds with one escape, he wanted to ratchet it up to another level. Houdini was about to add a terrifyingly dangerous twist to his act. In preparation, Houdini would try and hold his breath underwater in freezing cold baths. His record was 3 minutes 45 seconds. He practiced for ages, so, so. Houdini's instinctive sense of showmanship was extraordinary. Whilst other vaudeville performers were hidden away in theatres and music halls, Houdini did the unexpected, the audacious. Decided to perform his handcuff escapes out in the open and underwater. It was inspired. He could draw huge audiences. This was a dynamite 360 degrees spectacle. In fact, this was so successful, it actually caused Houdini a problem. Copycat acts sprang up everywhere. But no one was about to steal Houdini's thunder with his no nonsense motto do others or they will do you. He designed very public challenges to destroy the reputation of his rivals. On the 21st of September 1905, Houdini came here to Battery Park in Manhattan with the intention of throwing himself into the icy waters of the Hudson. He'd set up a challenge with another escape artist, Bondini, and they would race against one another to try and free themselves from wrist and ankle shackles. He plunged, nearly naked, into the water and disappeared from view. After one minute and 30 seconds, Houdini came to the surface. His hands were free. Bondini almost drowned. 
The huge crowd in Battery Park broke into cheers. They'd seen one of his first attempts at a life and death spectacle, a whole new thing in entertainment. Escaping underwater evidently obsessed Houdini. He began to devise increasingly terrifying and claustrophobic stunts. The one that gives me the willies is the milk can escape. Handcuffed and sealed inside an oversized milk can filled with water. The dramatic posters read, failure means a drowning death. I wonder where this fixation with water came from. There is a story that when he was just five years old, he fell into a lake. Struggling for his life, very nearly drowned. Could this terrifying encounter explain why he forged a career performing death-defying stunts? I'm meeting illusionist David Blaine's personal doctor to find out how risky Houdini's underwater escapes really were. So if we take Houdini in the milk can, once the top goes on there, what's happening to his body straight away? Your body is screaming, breathe, 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 and you can't because you're underwater. What happens if you hold your breath underwater too long and the carbon dioxide goes up, you will pass out underwater. As soon as drown. you hold your breath, you're producing carbon dioxide within your body that normally you would expel. So you're, you're poisoning yourself, really, is that right? Yes, you are basically making your brain shut itself down. Now, how do you overcome this? Well, willpower. You have to put yourself in circumstances more extreme so that you know you can tolerate those things which are going to be during the event. It is highly physically demanding, and these people are in unbelievable physical and, and more importantly, emotional and mental shape. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about is about Houdini's childhood, because there's a story that when I think he was about five years old, he had a near-death experience. He nearly drowned. Do you think there's any possibility that that trauma in his childhood led him to some fascination with water and repeating that experience or something later in his adult life? Well, it's a very interesting question. Trauma does lots and lots of things. In, in some ways, I think the trauma showed him that even if he is near death, there is a possibility of escape. And he then used that to say, I can make it so that people will think I cannot, but I will show them that I can. Each act was a remarkable feat of endurance, withstanding pain, overcoming fear, repressing panic. Worse, things didn't always go to plan. In New York, he gashed his head on the ocean floor. In Mississippi, the current was so strong, he nearly drowned. Most would stop at that. But Houdini, desperate to impress, was hell-bent on pushing his underwater act even further. The Chinese water torture cell. This was Houdini's most notorious act, combining the most terrifying elements. Hanging upside down, being confined, being submerged underwater. His performance is pure theater. Watching Houdini cheat near death is compelling and cathartic, like waking from a nightmare. There is a palpable sense of fear followed by deep relief. 
I'm meeting Richard Sherry and Dale Crawl, who have spent a lifetime and a marriage captivated by Houdini. Richard has made an exact replica of the water torture cell, and his wife, who is roughly Houdini-sized, performs the act. Is it painful? Yes, it hurts quite a bit. Yeah, it's very painful. So you get your feet locked up, and then once you're raised up vertically, you have the pain of your entire weight pulling down just on your feet. Now, I've been upside down, and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> no. I found it thoroughly disorienting. You rapidly lose There's the capacity to think Quite a bit straight. of pressure on your face when you're hanging upside down, yeah. Houdini probably had the same thing. When you're hanging upside down, it's hard to get that last breath. Then when you go to the bottom of the water tank, you actually have the water pressure pushing on you as well. Is it frightening? Yeah, it is. I've had blood vessels burst in my eyes. If something were to happen, there's so much water above you that you know you're in trouble. There's always the potential that something's gonna go wrong. With Houdini immersed in the tank, the red curtain came across. The audience would hold their breath, waiting for Houdini to escape. And he did, night after night. Although he knew how to get out, there was always that possibility that it could all go wrong. And to do this, day after day, horrific. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. Let's rejoin our journey into the life of Harry Houdini and find out how his death-defying stunts in New York soon became a worldwide phenomenon. 
In the era of the silent movie, Houdini flourished, embracing the new techniques and making them his own. Houdini was fast becoming one of America's most famous celebrity entertainers. And this is how he did it. He made himself the star of the show, got the cameras to roll, the crowds to cheer. Houdini was single-handedly pioneering a very modern relationship between performer, audience and the press. He had an insatiable need for success to be the number one. And so he'd create these incredible stunts here in Times Square. He hung up there, dangling from a straitjacket. Not just a great magician, but a great showman. Yes, the cunning Houdini, ever one to spot an opportunity, pulled these straitjacket escapes in front of newspaper offices. They only had to pop their head out the window to take a front-page photo. He even suggested the headlines for them. Houdini may be fated as a magician and illusionist, but I'm beginning to realize that first and foremost, he was a master of self-promotion. So Houdini's popularity, you can understand. I mean, he was an amazing entertainer, he was a brilliant showman, he was an incredible self-publicist. But I wonder if there's something more. Did he epitomize something to the crowds of people who came to see him? Was he the epitome of the American dream? Were they thinking, yes, we too could be like Harry. We could work hard, we could raise ourselves up. Yes, Harry, throw off your shackles. Throw off those bonds. We could do that. We could be free. We could be like Harry. Was Houdini the poster boy for the American dream? Cleverly tapping into his audience his hopes and fears. Well, there was a really kind of democratic side to Houdini, you know, performing in front of these hundreds of thousands of people on the street without charging them, uh, when he's in the theater, rolling up his sleeves and coming down to the front of the footlights and addressing the audience as, you know, hey, they're my pals, you know, that's it, no, no highfalutin stuff. And uh, he used everyday objects, a packing case, a milk can, a straitjacket, things that people uh, used that were all around them. So when they get into what motivated him to push himself so hard. Well, he certainly had a tremendous desire for recognition. Why do you think that was? What was it about him that made him want to be the undisputed number one every single day? Well, there one can really speculate. I mean, my belief is he was in a family with several other brothers, and I think he was always competing to outdo them. He wanted to be number one with mom. There's a wonderful entry in his diary. I think it was in New Jersey. He was handcuffed in a bridge, jumped off the bridge, handcuffed, instantly got out and was up uh, out of the water. And he writes in his uh, diary, Mom saw me do it. I, I, I think that's what Houdini is always saying. Mom saw me do it. Was impressing his mother really his main motivation? I wonder. There is no way of ever knowing what was really going on in his head, but there is one man who could help me get close. He nightly performs here. Vegas, baby. Vegas. Houdini created the blueprint 
for the modern celebrity illusionists and magicians. You do a big stunt, you make it scary, you make sure you have a huge crowd watching, and you make sure the press are tipped off. This strip is all about hype and fantasy. This is the Coney Island of its day, Las Vegas. And all the showmen and magicians and illusionists here today, they know they are standing on the shoulders of a tiny Hungarian. There he is, David Copperfield. Copperfield's billboard is so big you can see it from the airport. And that, that is what Harry would have wanted. I've been granted the rare privilege of seeing Copperfield's studio, where all of his illusions are created. It's also the site of his private museum, probably the most impressive magic collection in the world. Houdini is a key inspiration for Copperfield. He passionately collects everything he can. He now owns over two-thirds of all surviving Houdini artefacts. Wow. Including the restored water torture cell. It's incredible that you have the actual things in this room. Yeah. If Houdini were alive today and stand right there, he'd see his entire life surrounding him. You know, uh, seeing his things, touching them, understanding the care he put into each detail. I found a kindred spirit. I saw the real genius of it. I saw that he cared about that detail. I mean, this trunk just shows how he organized his papers and his plans and his publicity stunts, you know, uh, publicity schemes, it says inside that trunk. All organized. Well, that's me. I mean, it's like I didn't realize that, that he had that same kind of sensibility. So, David, the one thing that we're unable to do is see Houdini or hear him, but you have the only recording, am I right? Yes, so they say Thomas Edison uh, recorded his uh, voice doing the patter of the water torture cell, amongst other things, on a disc, and we've, it sounds something like this. Amazing. I cannot believe that he spoke like that normally when he was talking to Bess at home. <laughs> Maybe. It's performance. Bess, mode. I'm home. <laughs> I want yeah. my dinner in the water torture cell. <laughs> yes, no. Could have been. You don't know. Where does the drive come from? I mean, he was a very driven man, wasn't yeah. he? Houdini. Can you relate to him that drive to wanting to get to the top and then stay there? Every single artist that has lasted always has a need to, uh, to get it right. You know, for me, it's, you know, I, I'm, I watch a lot of people who are very satisfied with their work and very satisfied with what they're doing and kind of, oh, that was a good job. And I've, <laughs> unfortunately, I have the curse of not thinking that. I'm never satisfied. Houdini, I think, is the same. I think, you know, he wanted to always prove himself. Can I ask you also a bit about his childhood? There's a story that he nearly drowned when he was five years old, and people wonder if that prompted his obsession later on with going in the water and escaping. Do you think there's I, any truth in that? I think we all in our lives find things that uh, uh, drive us to do what we want, need to do. Uh, you know, everything that I've done with escapes and physical things are all to get over fears. You know, I uh, uh, was a, you know, had nightmares about getting trapped in a fire, and I did a, a piece called Tornado of Fire. I had a fear of heights a bit, and uh, I did the 10 stories over the, the spikes, which is totally Houdini inspired uh, we all have things that we're trying to prove to ourselves to uh, you know get past in our lives 
So that's really interesting to meet the modern day version. A person who has his driven and is committed to his craft, controls everything that he does, wants to be the best, never satisfied with what he's done. And I really felt like there's a character type there. It's probably the closest we're gonna get to Houdini. And then to hear Houdini's voice, although it did sound a bit like one of the goons, was really special. Houdini, now in his late 30s, is earning the staggering sum of up to $5,000 a week, the equivalent today of over £70,000. Still regularly performing his straitjacket stunts, jumping into rivers, and if that wasn't enough, he was the very first person to fly in Australia. Oh, and he was becoming a movie star too. Houdini was a monumental success. But funnily enough, he was also exhausted. In a rare off-guard moment, Houdini gave a candid interview to the press, hinting at the cost his career was taking on his life and his body. I want to be first. So I have struggled and fought, I have done and abstained, I have tortured my body and risked my life only for that, to have one plank on the stage where the imitators cannot come, one spot where they must fall back and cry, master. For Houdini, quite simply, failure was not an option. He disregarded any personal feelings and continued what he did best, entertaining his loyal audience with terrifying acts. Hard, particularly as he was suffering trauma in his personal life. His beloved mother, Cecilia, died in 1913. He fainted on hearing the news and was desperately depressed. Another sadness was that Bess and he wanted to have children, but never did. Instead, Houdini would spend time performing magic tricks to sick children in hospital. And in his career, instead of slowing down, Houdini just kept on striving, performing the most demanding of escapes. Do you think he was a bit crazy? It's driven. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he's crazy, because if he was crazy, he would have been dead. No matter if there's a trick or an illusion, you could die. So it must have taken a, a, a toll on Houdini, especially later in his life. Well, doing a show three times a day or a straitjacket, escape outside in the wind, in the rain, whatever. Mm -hmm. These are very strenuous. Somebody in their 40s or 50s doing this for 30 years is takes a toll on your body. As a matter of fact, he would write repeatedly in his diary, the work is killing, must find another way. Work is killing, must find another way, you know, exclamatively. He could feel his powers waning, his strength and his muscles and... Yeah, so after a while, Houdini was interested on, maybe there's a way to reverse the process of, of aging. Uh, maybe, oh, wow. yes, and he uh, was started to uh, investigate uh, monkey gland transplants to stay young from really? the fountain of youth. The idea was, was to uh, remove uh, testicles from a monkey and have them grafted to one's own testicles to stay young. And wow. this was not a, a passing phase. Houdini studied this for four or five years, maybe longer. If you'd like to read this, this is some of his uh, correspondence. My dear Clifford Smythe, just a line to let you know that my friend Dr. Max Thorek, the great gland operator, we'll call him Transplantor, has been invited to speak at the Rome Convention and will arrive in New York sometime this month before he sails. If you care to meet him, I'll arrange a meeting at my home. 
I know we'll have an interesting conference. Kind regards, most wishes, sincerely yours, Houdini. Another headed note paper, Houdini, 278 West 113th Street. Wow. It's amazing. Well, that was extraordinary, the idea that he might have had monkey glands sewn to his own testicles. But he was obviously so determined to stay on top, and people have always wanted to find the elixir of youth. And that was just the latest thing, I suppose. Driven, that's what Kevin kept saying, driven. Driven to stay at the top. But I can't think of any entertainers who would actually inflict physical pain on themselves. It sounds much more like an Olympic athlete, like someone like Steve Redgrave vomiting in the boat after a training session, and people who drive themselves to extremes. But then he's both. He's like an Olympic athlete and a great entertainer. So he's two things in one, really. It wasn't just Houdini that felt his power waning. In the late 1920s, America's age of success and excess was about to end. The Great Depression was looming. In 1926, as Houdini was touring his biggest show yet, his tragic demise began. In Montreal, two young fans came to see Houdini. One of these boys asked him if it was true that he could withstand a punch to the stomach. Houdini, of course, said yes. The boy landed several heavy, hard punches before Houdini had had a chance to prepare himself. By the time he reached Detroit, the pain was unbearable. But of course, he went on and did his show despite a raging temperature and fainting between the acts. He was taken to hospital, but doctors were unable to cure his ruptured appendix and peritonitis. Everyone thought the master of escape would pull through. But after several days, Houdini whispered, I can't fight anymore. On October the 31st, 1926, Halloween, Houdini died at the age of 52. The tragedy is that by wanting to be the best, enduring a lifetime of overriding pain and overcoming fear, he didn't take action when he really was in danger. Houdini's funeral procession passed through Times Square. Thousands took to the streets. As requested, his head rested on a pile of letters from his mother. Now, 90 years on, Houdini is proving just as much of a mystery in death as he was in life. I'm off to a seance, as Houdini enthusiasts still try to contact him. Every year. We uh, have been doing the seance with these special seance cuffs that Houdini said he would open up after he passed away, if it was possible. These have been on the table at every seance since 1948. Houdini would have loved nothing more than to contact the spirit of his mother, but he knew spiritualism was a cheap scam. He hated the way mediums preyed on the weak and the emotional, so he took it upon himself to debunk these fraudsters and destroy their careers. But on his deathbed, Houdini told his wife Bess a secret code so that if a medium claimed they had contacted him from beyond the grave, she would know if this was true or not. It seemed he wanted to control his reputation even after death. 
Well, I'm in New York to make a documentary film about Houdini and uh, most impressed, I think, by his courage. Houdini meant an awful lot to me because I actually saw him when I was four and a half years old. And uh, it left an impression on me that will never leave me, I guess. It just does something to me. It always has. He was a wonderful, wonderful person. So I've been in the seance, and I'm largely unchanged. Larry was the star of the show, 93-year-old Larry. It just made me feel very sad that we were trying to raise the spirit of someone who died at 52. I'm 47, I'm only five years off 52. It's unthinkable for me, I can't die at 52. I've got children, two small children. I think perhaps it's the great tragedy of Houdini's life that he and Bess never managed to have a baby. Maybe that would have changed everything. Maybe he wouldn't have taken those blows in the stomach. Maybe he'd have stopped risking his life. Maybe he could have been here like Larry, twinkling away, telling us what it was like being Houdini. In fact, Houdini did have a child. It was perhaps his ultimate illusion. He had an imaginary child, poignantly named after his father, Samuel Meyer. Years after his death, Bess reported that Houdini wrote to her every day, updating her on the progress of their child. These letters stopped only when the son became, guess what, President of the United States. For a man who epitomized the American dream, this would have been the ultimate accolade. Houdini's story is extraordinary. A refugee from Hungary, a quick-witted entrepreneur who dragged himself out of poverty and obscurity, a man dedicated to being the best, cheating death every day to become the celebrated master of illusion. So perhaps it's true to say that people who lead the most dynamic, dazzling lives, who, who leave a real legacy around their own name, almost always do so against the background of real personal struggle and great drive. With Houdini, his drive was to push himself, to push his, his mind and his body in particular to, to limits previously unknown, to see how far he could go, how far it was humanly possible to go. He made the impossible seem possible driving himself, pushing himself, but always under complete control. As he said himself, my brain is the key that sets me free. But in doing so, he created the impression of a, of a superman, a superhuman, a superhero. Some people called it magic. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for our journey into the life and death of one of the world's most beloved performers. Join us next week when we take a shocking inside look into the Alexander Litvinenko poisoning. In the meantime, if you can't wait to learn more, just head to our YouTube, where we have hundreds of documentaries you can watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 